And good afternoon. It's 4 o'clock. Thanks for tuning in to CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located here in Lower Corvus Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce. This is Finding a Voice, spoken word program airing here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. Coming up on the show today, in the first hour, you'll hear a very recent telephone interview I conducted with Mary Lee Bragg uh, with her recently released collection of poetry called The Landscape That Isn't There and ahead of her upcoming appearance with it at Poetry at Art Fest 5 in now just a little over two weeks, hard to believe. Following that, uh, from a June 1st launch and uh, reading event featuring two novels at Novel Idea Bookstore, you'll hear Nancy Jo Cullen with her The Western Alienation Merit Badge and Becky Blake with her Proof I Was Here. And in the second hour, from a May 30th book launch and reading event, you'll hear Teresa Greenwood uh, discussing her book about the Fort McMurray wildfires. The book is called what you take with you. This first, though, the usual hourly announcement, occasionally some poetry spoken word or music played on the show may contain strong language, but all played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. And I will have a bit of time uh, to share upcoming events and calls for submissions. I think at uh, the end of both hours today, I might even be able to end with a little bit of music this afternoon at the end of the show. So to start off with this hour off, I'd like to share with you an interview again with Mary Lee Bragg and then her short reading after. Uh, She will be one of the featured poets coming to Kingston on Monday, July 1st to participate in the three-day poetry festival called Poets at ArtFest 5 that runs Saturday, June 29th through Monday, July 1st. Her new book uh, just released and uh, will Kingston launch at the festival is called The Landscape That Isn't There. Let's go ahead and just jump into that. Hi, Mary Lee. How are you? Hi, Bruce. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Well, thank you for your time today uh, doing this uh, interview and short reading, so uh, thanks. Oh, no problem. My pleasure. Uh, my pleasure as well. Well, um, most of my questions are pretty casual. Uh, I try to uh, give uh, the listeners out there a little bit of an idea of who who they're listening to. How's that? That sounds good to me. Okay. Well, the first one, uh, when, when did you first uh, think you might be a writer? And uh, if there is a difference, when did you know for sure? I can remember the first poem that I wrote when I was in grade two. I wrote it stomping across the schoolyard, and I rhymed the word snow and blow. I always had this image of myself as a writer, and I got very dramatic about it in high school. Um, And then kind of, um, well, I kept it as an application all through my career. I mean, I've been writing forever. I think what's new for me is that since I've retired from the public service, what I've been doing is not just writing, but I've been finishing things. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. So instead of just, you know, jotting and notes and uh, journaling and that kind of thing, I've now got, you know, a poetry manuscript that, you know, shaped into what I think is a pretty interesting book. Oh, I, yeah. I'm the, are you talking about the new one that's coming out? 
Very wonderful. We're going to hear from that in just a bit. The cool thing is, is a, a number of people uh, that uh, I interview uh, say the same thing. You know, it, oh no, yeah. Even when I was a child, I I was writing. So that's really cool to know. Yeah, it's just uh, it's a way of approaching the world. It's a way of organizing how you understand what's out there. Yeah, exactly. I totally agree with that. And, you know, it, I, they may have changed over the course of time, but can you uh, point out uh, maybe any influences or other writers or poets who have affected you or maybe even just simply who you're reading these days? Uh, well, these days, um, I recently I read Robin Sarah's book, My Shoes Are Killing Me. Ah, yes, that's a good book. Governor General's Award. I've... Um, when she talks about the beginning of dwindle, I just feel like she's speaking to our entire generation and yeah. me in particular. Uh, but I also have been reading Sharon Olds for a very long time. Yeah, um, I really like her book Stag's Leap, and in fact, one of the poems in this uh, new book is based on one of the poems in her book. And definite influence on my work is the uh, Canadian poet Colin Morton. Oh, wonderful. My yeah. husband. Yeah, exactly. For 50 years, you know, and I've read everything he's ever written. <laughs> Goes without saying, right? <laughs> well, you know, it's a very particular kind of style. I think he's writing in the same genre as uh-huh. uh, Robin Sarah and Sharon Olds, which is the, you know, the modern lyric poem. Uh-huh. Oh, that's wonderful. That is, yeah, beautiful. Great answer. Thank you. Thank you. And when you do write, uh, do you have like a routine? I'm a little bit disorganized, but the one part of my routine that has been really structured and really faithful for about the past decade is that I belong to a writing group here in Ottawa called the Ruby Tuesdays. And we meet every Tuesday morning for three hours um, and basically critique each other's work and also do free writing exercises. Oh, wow. Um, An extremely productive group. And, I mean, that's where I think I began finishing things. Oh, that is too cool. How long have you been doing that? Uh, I've been with that group in that particular constellation for about seven years. Oh, wow. But I've been in writing groups with members in other ways uh, before that. Oh. These are people I've known for at least a decade. Wow, that's perfect. That's There's yeah. definitely some history involved there then. Yeah, but I found the free writing exercises that we do every Tuesday. That's where I actually do uh, get a lot of poem drafts. Oh, that's... And also the fact that you're encouraged to bring the same thing back and work through revisions with the group. You know, like I say, finishing things has always been my my downfall. I think maybe that might be probably the hardest thing for writers in general. So, but uh, that that might be an overgeneralization too. Yeah. Uh, was going to ask you, and you've kind of answered it, but I don't know if that's the only time you write. So let's say in those other times that you're writing outside the group, uh, do you prefer like? Seclusion. I, I've always, any time that I've been writing in a very structured way, like uh, I wrote a, no, a couple of novels actually, and those I always wrote first thing in the morning. Ah. Was get up, make coffee, go to the computer, write, you know, and sometime along in there have breakfast. And then when, you know, 
I set myself a goal of four pages. When that was done, I would stop, and that would usually be around noon. Oh, that sounds like a very good plan. It was, yeah, the poetry I write very differently. It's sort of more when I feel that something needs to happen, and I have notebooks around all over the place and write little sketches down, but then I'll just set aside time in the morning and sit down and work on something and try to get it into an actual shape rather than just notes. Oh, that sounds perfect. Does sound like morning is your time, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not one of those people who's up all night, you know, <laughs> writing priceless things at 1 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're going to go ahead and move a little bit into your work now uh, that's more recent. Uh, well, maybe not more recent than the writing group, but more recent than where we started this off. I'm just going to kind of... S- Sum up from the back of your, I should mention your new book is called The Landscape That Isn't There. Yeah. And uh, your bio in uh, on the back cover says that you spent your childhood in rural uh, southern Alberta and was educated in Calgary. You now live in Ottawa where you uh, had a career in public uh, service focusing on official languages that your award-winning poetry and short fiction have appeared in literary magazines and e-zines in Canada, the U.S., and Cuba. And uh, to your credit, to date, other than this new book coming out, uh, you have published uh, the novel Shooting Angels in 2004 and two poetry chapbooks, How Women Work and uh, Winter Music. I actually have a copy of Winter Music. I may even have a copy of How Women Work, but uh, I remember when we re- our paths crossed a few, uh, a few years ago, I grabbed yeah. a copy of Winter Music. I loved it. Yeah, I like it quite a lot, too. That was uh, the Tree Reading Series here in Ottawa has a chapbook contest each year, and that was the winner in 2013. Ah, beautiful. That really was encouraging. That was, you know, kept me going another three years at least. That is, uh, sometimes we need those things. <laughs> oh, I think so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's let's talk, um, I mean, just briefly, I don't want, I want to really, I want to spend a little bit of time, and then I also want to allow you time to read, too. Uh, but uh, tell me just a bit about your novel. Uh, that's going back to 2004, Shooting Angels. Oh, right. Well, I wrote it while I was on a leave of absence from uh, work, living in Mystic, Connecticut. And actually, the story about writing it, I think, is more interesting than the novel. <laughs> the, the, the novel is the story of a journalist who returns from uh, Sarajevo to Ottawa in 1995 and is coping with uh, death in the family. He moves into his parents' house and starts dealing with the physical after effects of their life and goes through a personal crisis and kind of pulls out of it with the help of various friends in Ottawa and it ends um, just as the uh, October referendum in Quebec is happening. Oh wow. That's... And you're seeing it through his point of view as someone who has covered the breakup of a country you know, in a very bloody and traumatic way. Oh wow. That yeah. sounds really, really interesting. Is that still in print? Uh, I I have copies. I can bring you one July first. Okay, that was that sounds wonderful. <laughs> I was also asking for the radio the radio audience in case they were interested. So, but uh, I can talk about that when I air your reading when you're here. How's that? 
Yeah, that would be good. Well, it's available through libraries. Oh, okay. That would be your best bet to get it. Sweet. Now that sounds perfect. Yeah, but, you know, 2004, it's really difficult to, you know, get a book that old. Yeah, yeah. I, I imagine that it is. Uh, and your, let's, your two poetry chapbooks were How Women Work in 2010 and, again, Winter Music in 2013. Are they somewhat similar in, like, say, style or voice? Oh, yeah, very much so. In fact, there's some poems that carry over from uh, How Women Work right through and are in the landscape that isn't there. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah. Because that kind of, uh, you're even projecting into your new work that uh, there, it, there is a similarity, at least in voice or style, to a certain degree between uh, uh, your work eight years ago or nine years ago. And, oh, yeah. 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 Okay. Well, so you, the new book that's coming up is re- really represents uh, about ten years of work. Oh, okay. That's perfect. That sounds wonderful. And I, uh, did you want to tell us a little bit more about uh, the new book, uh, The Landscape That Isn't There? Well, as I said, it covers about 10 years of writing. Uh, when I was putting it together, you know, with uh, the amount of material that you write over that time, you look for common themes. And uh, one of the ones that leaped out at me, of course, was family and family history. So uh-huh. there's a sizable section on that. But while I was putting this manuscript together, my heart failed, and I ended up going into the Ottawa Heart Institute and having open heart surgery. And while I was going through that experience, one of the ways that I coped with it was by uh, writing poetry about it as I went along. And that series of poems is now, you know, it's the heart of the book. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, it's actually called Problems of the Heart, and it it deals with, you know, diagnosis, treatment, and recovery. Uh, And then at the end, there's a, well, you were talking about voice, that's the the, the final section is just sort of the person who's been through, you know, comes from that past Uh and has been through these experiences, you know, taking on the world in various ways. I mean, one of the poems is uh, playing Scrabble with King Henry VIII, Uh it's just a place where I play a little bit in that last section. Oh, that sounds that that whole thing sounds beautiful. And by the way, I love the title of the book. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. it's a almost a poem in itself. So, yeah. <laughs> well, what I would really like to do is uh, hear you uh, read some, and I believe you're going to read a bit from that book. Is that right? Oh, that sounds like a perfect choice. I think it'll explain what I mean. Um, The landscape that isn't there. Yeah, the living room would have been here. My brother pauses in the lighting department of the hardware store that stands where our mother's house was. The city goes on the same as always outside the store. Blocks of little houses, lawns, shrubbery, and this store full of rakes, hoses, clippers, doorknobs. We're not even in the living room of that bungalow, but above it, in this second floor department, seeking light. We hover over her home, conscious of what was, just as we still navigate by what isn't there anymore, turned left at the tree that shattered and fell during the ice storm 20 years ago. We look at bulbs, 
cords and switches, what we seek for our houses, always half turned, listening for a voice, a light step into the room of the living. That's wonderful. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I really like that. That is really, really nice. Yeah. Well, it shows it as the title poem because I think it captures a lot of what's going on in the rest of the book. There are many, many themes that show up in other places, you know, the family relationships and just, you know, the list of nouns. You know, the world is just full of nouns, and yeah. that's what we're dealing with all the time. <laughs> Oh, that, no, that's wonderful. I really, really love that poem. Oh, good. Thank you. <coughs> cough, cough. Yeah, it's that time of year. <laughs> yeah, well, pollen, it's out there. And which one are we going to go with next? Uh, would you like one from the heart sequence? Yeah, for sure. Okay, well, this is the poem that I wrote. Um wrote down the day after they phoned me from the hospital and moved my surgery up from after Christmas to before Christmas. Surgery at Christmas is an extra special present that you get if they think you're not going to live until January. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, it was kind of intense. So this is called Mark the Date. I am dying, Egypt, dying, Mark Anthony said that afternoon three years ago when we walked from the British Museum to the Globe and paused at St. Paul's for Evensong on the walk back. Now I am in Act 5. Week by week I ebb. I can't walk across the park, can't walk a block, can't go outside. A flight of stairs looms, unclimbable, between me and bed. It is fast, but slower than I expected. My father and his father dropped at work. My mother and her mother announced, I don't feel very well, I think I'll just lie down, and never rose again. Hmm. In any century but this, I would put my affairs in order, plan my funeral, summon family, give them the last bits of wisdom from my oxygen-starved brain. But now I contemplate these miracles how Beethoven arranged black dots on paper to make emotion, how that emotion reliably lowers my blood pressure, how Miss Jane Austen's heroines, Elizabeth, Emma, Eleanor, all surmount their problems of the heart, how soon masked men will set my breasts aside to break my sternum and touch my heart. They will cut it, sew it, after taking a deep breath in, like my mother when she cut into expensive taffeta to make a wedding dress. Wow, that that's really, really wonderful. Yeah. But you can see some of the themes coming back. Yes, exactly. Oh, I mean, yeah. It's very interesting, actually, looking at a large body of work like that. You know, when you've got 10 years worth and start shuffling it around and putting it into piles. I, yeah. Well, you've been through that fairly recently, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, I have. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, right. Yeah. And yeah, I really love that. And what section are we going to tr- uh, go to now? Well, you've had one out of part one and one out of part two. Why don't I read you uh, the very last poem in the book? Oh, that sounds like a perfect way. Uh, it is called... I can get to it. 
bones. This is the one I mentioned that uh, I modeled a poem on Sharon Old. She has a poem called Poem for the Breasts in her book Stag's Leap, and I wrote this one called Poem for the Bones. Perfect. My bones conspire against me in whispered clicks. Tarsus to talus to cuneiform, they plot which will slide, which will shatter. They weren't always like this. I slid into the world cartilaginous as a shark. Skull bones slid over one another, compressed me into air. Now I am as tall as they are long, used to hearing, hey, sir, from behind. And now patella bitches at the quadriceps femora, socket pouts at ball, and in spite of all that calcium, I am an inch shorter than I used to be. I always thought of my bones as the only part of me that might have an afterlife. I see them hung on a frame in the anatomy classroom, skull modestly inclined, smiling. Misled by length of tibia and femur, the students will call me Mr. Bones. <laughs> that is really good. <laughs> I really like that. <laughs> three hits out of three tries. That's good. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> that was a, I don't know what they call that. I don't follow sports enough. There's probably a sports term for that. <laughs> I think. Yeah, there you go. That sounds right. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, do you have a website or anything where people could get a hold of you if they wanted to? Uh, no, I don't. I am on Facebook. Okay. Um, I guess I should open up a Facebook page, but yeah. Yeah. Thank you for uh, suggesting that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's all good. Uh, how can uh, people get a hold of copies of your book then? Let's do that. Uh, it's uh, going to be available through the Literary Press Group. It's Aeolus House. Uh, books, which is an imprint of Quattro. Yep. So any place that carries literary press group books or Quattro books, you can order it. You can order it on Amazon. And of course, I will have copies. Wow, wonderful. <laughs> so it's the usual, you know, distribution, small independent bookstores or Amazon or, yeah. Or in person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I think so. Like I said, the LPG, the Literary Press Group, has got Quattro books on it, and I think that's where the bookstores would go to order it. Probably, yeah, that sounds right. Well, it's been wonderful chatting with you this afternoon, and again, I really, really loved your readings, so, and I loved your answers as well, so... Thank well, I you. Hope you can, I hope you can edit it into something that sounds sensible. Well, I'm going to just go raw. That's what I usually do. I edit for no, sound no, no. quality, and that's it. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for inviting me on, Bruce. It was uh, really a pleasure. My pleasure, too, and I look forward to seeing you in less than a month now. Yeah, great. At Artfest. Artfest. You got it. Yeah, July 1st at 1.30. That'll be me. There you go. You plugged yourself. That's perfect. I finally. I'm getting the hang of this. Yeah, that's too cool. Well, you have a wonderful month until then. Great. You too. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. And you just heard, <clears throat> excuse me, my interview with Mary Lee Bragg. And uh, that was done, oh, maybe a week or two at the most ago. And uh, then her short reading after from her new book, uh, which sounds wonderful. 
Uh, she will be, again, one of, and we mentioned it there, I did before, but I'll plug it again here. She will be one of the featured poets coming to Kingston on Monday, July 1st to participate in the three-day poetry festival called Poets at Art Fest 5 that runs uh, Saturday, uh, June 29th through Monday, July 1st. Uh, and that is, I should also mention, part of Art Fest Kingston uh, that also runs... Uh, those three days from 10 a.m. until 6 p.m. every day. So, and uh, over the holiday weekend, her new book again just released, uh, and she will Kingston launch it, I guess, at the festival. Again, is called the landscape that isn't there. Gonna go from you know what? I'm gonna plug. I'm gonna do this first, and then we'll be right back. Since 1922, CFRC Radio has been the canvassing and community radio station for Queens and Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is both listener-supported and listener-created radio, bringing both music and spoken word content to our community on 101.9 FM and around the world on cfrc.ca. Support locally created media. Learn more at cfrc.ca. And you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. And we do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. So next we're going to go into a June 1st launch and reading event uh, featuring two novels. It was held at Novel Idea Bookstore. And in it, you're going to hear uh, Nancy Jo Cullen uh, with her book called The Western Alienation Merit Badge. And then you're, all, you're also going to hear in it uh, Becky Blake with her Proof I Was Here. And I believe the evening began with Becky's reading, and then they just sort of introduced each other. So I'm going to go ahead and just play them back-to-back -back uninterrupted. Here you go. Again, here are... Nancy Jo Cullen and Becky Blake. Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming. Um, I feel like I should have written notes, but I didn't. And it makes me think of my dad, who used to always just fly by the seat of his pants. But effectively, I'm not sure I'll be as effective. But anyway, thanks so much, Oscar, for um, having us here tonight, and Joanna for the amazing food, mm -hmm. which is never a surprise when you come to a launch at Novel Idea. One of the things you know you're going to get is really good food, and some wine, and also probably really good books and reading as well. But the food is certainly a draw. Um, so thank you all for coming. Uh, Becky and I. Uh, are, uh, met one another um, in the MFA program in, uh, at the University of Guelph, and, mm -hmm. and here we are launching first novels together with Wolzak and Wynn. So it's exciting for us to read together, to travel in our little southern Ontario world together to read. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, I guess we're, we're excited, we're nervous, and we're going to read to you tonight a little bit, each of us from our novels, and then you could maybe buy novels and we'll sign them for you afterward. So Becky's novel is Proof I Was Here. It's a, a story of a young woman lost in Barcelona and finding herself. And... Um, uh, her world is turned upside down at the beginning of the novel, and she just kind of goes with it in these, in this kind of way that sometimes happens when you're young and you just lose your safety, and you just follow 
the impulse, the thing in front of you, and not always for the best, but it's a great read, and it's an interesting journey through the sort of underbelly and the uh, unknown sort of parts of Barcelona, it's, and um, and so it's a great book to read, and you'll know that when you hear her read from it tonight. So I'm going to read a little bit about her bio. I could tell you stories about her, but I'm not going to. <laughs> Most of them are pretty funny, actually. <laughs> She's pretty funny. But Becky is a, a two-time winner of the CBC Literary Prize for fiction and for nonfiction, and um, and she really is. Um, that good of a writer and um, her fiction and essays have appeared in publications across Canada. She has an MFA as I already said from the University of Guelph. Um, she teaches creative writing at University of Toronto School of Continuing Education and she lives in Toronto where she's working on a second novel and memoir and essay. She was just doing a thing with the Taylor Prize as one of their mentees so she was spending a week doing working on that so she's got lots of exciting stuff coming up an essay in the what's the anthology that's coming up against death against death <laughs> so she's got a great essay that i just read this afternoon sounds like a bummer but it's kind of it's about the life oh, well, there's a subtitle it's 35 writers talk about living uh, you know, after so. scary shit. So there you go. So uh, welcome to Becky Blake, and so so glad we get to share this together. Thank you. Um, this is really exciting for Nancy to be sharing her sort of hometown launch with me, and uh, thank you all for being here tonight. Um, I, I second the like. Just amazement at the the food, and um, I am especially impressed with the Spanish tortilla, which is like <laughs> something as a vegetarian that I ate every day in Barcelona, because it's pretty much the only vegetarian tapa. <laughs> so anyway, that's that's delicious and lovely. Um, let's see here. Okay, so Nancy told you a little bit about this uh, about this novel. Um, I'm just going to read a little bit from it. Um, to set the stage, I will tell you that the main character is a, a young Canadian artist who's just moved to Barcelona. Um, and on the afternoon previous to this scene, her fiancé suddenly dumps her. And uh, she's been riding the train all night trying to process this loss and figure out what she's going to do in the city where she doesn't know anybody. By 8 a.m., the train had picked up speed, and there were people around me again sitting tall and self-important in their church clothes. The artificial light exposed everyone's flaws, their undyed roots, razor-burned chins, and sweat stains. I closed my eyes and didn't bother to open them again, even when passengers sat down beside me. For a long time, there was only the weight of strangers' bodies coming and going. One particular body caught my attention eventually because it smelled like the outdoors, sea air mixed with soil and exhaust. I shifted slightly away, then thought I felt something touch me. I reached my hand into my pocket before remembering. I had no keys, no money to protect. Instead, I felt the brush of retreating fingers. I straightened up and opened my eyes. Sitting beside me was a young guy with gold-brown skin and dark eyes. He wore a folded bandana over a mess of black hair and a dirty leather cuff around each of his wrists. Both hands were on his knees now where I could see them. He was looking down at his fingers. Mejor quedate despierta, he said. The sense of his words burst in on me without knocking. Growing up when my mom was working late, our neighbor Rosa had always said the same thing to me if I started to fall asleep on her couch. It's better if you stay awake. I took a moment to rearrange my limited Spanish vocabulary, then told him that I didn't need to stay awake. There was nothing in my pockets. 
He turned to study me then, and the light in the subway flickered. For a second, he looked like a small boy, vulnerable. Then he was a young man again, a thief. Something raw and open passed between us. It felt like recognition. I watched him walk down the length of the train, nobody looking as he passed. A tourist couple was blocking one of the doors, pointing up at a metro map. The woman had a knapsack on her back, and the pickpocket stopped behind her. The train made a sudden snaking motion as it entered a new tunnel, and the woman stumbled and regained her balance. It had happened so fast, I wasn't sure I'd really seen him do it. Just a quick flash of motion behind her back. I almost called out to the tourists, but I changed my mind. They were laughing together, the woman holding onto the man's arm. Honeymooners, maybe. It was stupid to live like that, like children in adult bodies so trusting and unprotected. Mm-hmm. A recorded voice announced the name of the next station, Irkinaona, and the train began to slow. The pickpocket glanced back at me, then disappeared through the open door. All the blood in my body rushed to my legs as I stood up, propelled by one thought only. I needed to go where he was going. I stepped off the train just as the doors were closing. The pickpocket was already on the escalator, halfway to the top. I squeezed my way around people until I was almost close enough to touch him. Through his thin t-shirt, his shoulder blades looked like handles I could grab. Outside, the sunlight was blinding. I followed him for a block, keeping a little distance between us. At the corner, he stopped at a red light, and I came up beside him, my heart knocking hard. He turned, and I forced myself to meet his gaze. One of his dark eyes was a little sleepy, and beneath it, a constellation of freckles was scattered across his cheek. His nose pointed slightly in the other direction as though it had been badly broken. When the light changed from red to green, he gave me a small nod and I felt like we were making a deal. I wasn't sure for what. We began to walk together, first along the top edge of the Gothic Quarter, then into El Raval, the neighborhood on the opposite side of La Rambla. I'd been to El Raval a few nights before with Peter. We had planned to eat dinner there, but we hadn't really felt safe. There were fewer street lamps and after taking a wrong turn, We'd ended up in a dark alley full of beggars and junkies that led to a street lined with sex workers. I'd seen a splash of fresh blood on the cobblestones. The pickpocket shifted closer to me on the sidewalk as we squeezed by a group of men gathered in front of a butcher shop. They were talking in a language I didn't recognize and they watched us as we passed. Above my head, laundry flat from balconies. I heard babies crying and somewhere a car alarm was going off. A tall man in a suit shuffled by. There was something wrong with his feet. When I turned to look, I saw that one of his legs was fake. It had twisted around and was pointing in the wrong direction. The sadness in the city kept creeping up behind me, tapping me on the shoulder. Look, it seemed to be saying. Look here and here and here. I followed the pickpocket through a stone archway. A tarnished plaque said we were entering the grounds of the city's first hospital no longer in use. There was a damp, hurt smell coming from inside the courtyard. When we walked toward it, I saw a man pulling a needle out of his arm another washing his shirt in the fountain. Two others were yelling back and forth, hands in the air. All of them stopped as we entered, and I stopped too. The pickpocket looked back to see if I was coming, and I searched his face for a promise of safety that wasn't there. When I moved toward him again, he led me into a shadowed corner that smelled like piss and orange blossoms. Behind a pillar, he bent down and swung open a metal grate. Inside was a dusty green knapsack. I heard him rummaging through the pockets, and when he turned, he handed me a cream-filled pastry in a plastic wrapper. His fingernails were dirty. Tienes que comer, he said. You have to eat. I took the pastry. Gracias. De nada. He lifted his T-shirt and pulled the tourist wallet from the waistband of his jeans. He was very thin, and he had a shiny pink scar snaking across his stomach. I took a couple small bites of the pastry, then stuck the rest of it back in the wrapper. Eating sweet things always made me feel sick. They weren't really food. The pickpocket was looking through the wallet and pulling out the money. 
It was a sensible beige canvas wallet with snap pockets for change. The tourists would be mourning its loss now, their day refocused around cancelling their credit cards, making expensive phone calls, trying not to blame each other. I wondered what they would do to make themselves feel better, how long it would take. The pickpocket wrapped the wallet in a piece of newspaper and walked over to stuff it in a trash can. When he returned, he asked for my name. Jane, I said. It was an alias I hadn't used since I'd been caught shoplifting as a teen. He put his hand on his chest. Manu. It was either his name or the name of something that lived inside him. Manu, I repeated, and he nodded. So that's a little piece of that, and now we get to Nancy's book, Nancy's <laughs> wonderful book, which I just finished reading. I read it in draft a long time ago. Um, uh, we both been working on these books for quite some time, um, but um, yeah, I just finished rereading it a couple days ago, the finished version, and it's really wonderful. You guys are really in for a treat. Um, so uh, the book is primarily set in the early 80s in Calgary, and it's sort of about this dysfunctional family that's struggling with grief as they... Um, well, as it says on the back so succinctly, <laughs> as they totter on the brink of financial ruin in the wake of Canada's disastrous nat nat national sorry, energy program. Um, so it's sort of this story of these, uh, uh, the main character is this woman, Frankie, and she's returning home to help uh, her dad uh, after her stepmother has died and help pay the mortgage and um, help sort of support the family and the family has sort of had a history of uh, bad communication um, that is uh, has kind of uh, kind of comes to various different uh, crisis points in the novel that actually takes place it's got pieces in the 70s the 80s and in present day so it spans uh, this a, a, la a large piece of this family's uh, communication life together and uh, yeah it's really wonderful um, so yeah as Nancy said we've known each other for quite some time and um, we used to drink small beers together uh, <laughs> early in the or late afternoon but early like before other people would sort of be thinking about drinking beer <laughs> <laughs> We finished early too, though. We yeah, we finished early too. <laughs> one, one beer at like 4 p.m. But yeah. Uh, anyway, um, yes, we miss her in Toronto, but uh, I know she's super happy here, and uh, I can see that she's really made a lot of connections here in the years she's been here. So. And I'll just read you her bio because it's very impressive. Uh, Nancy Jo Cullen is the fourth recipient of the Writers' Trust Dane Ogilvy Prize for LGBT Emerging Writers. She holds an MFA in Creative Writing from the University of Guelph. And her short story collection, Canary, was the winner of the 2012 Metcalf Rook Award. Her poetry has been shortlisted for the Gerald Lampert Memorial Award, the Writers Guild of Alberta's Stephen G. Stephenson Award, and the City of Calgary W.O. Mitchell Book Prize. She lived in Calgary for over two decades and still returns regularly to connect with family and friends. And she now lives in Kingston. Yes, so come on up. And I'll give you a good Thanks. Thanks. I'm going to just say one more thing. I want to just thank Oscar one more time for having us at Novel Idea. And just to say that um, without local bookstores and without 
there wouldn't be local literature and there definitely wouldn't be national literature and and that's true of probably every country and it's definitely true of this country and so without people sticking it out uh, and in, in, in nearly impossible profit margins in little corners um, supporting writers, we would be um, in a terrible position. So I'm grateful for, you know, the spread and the space and the generosity and the readers that the local uh, clerks that work in these stores read our books and then sell them. And so this is, I just want to express gratitude for that. Thank you. Um, I also wanted to say the guy that designed my book, Michelle Rana, is amazing, and I feel that that was a really amazing uh, gift because every little section has a little badge. <laughs> so all this extra work that uh, he didn't have to do, he just did of his own sort of creative ideas, and that's a really aren't I lucky? <laughs> so I'm going to read three short sections from this book. Uh, the opening page and then two other sections, one from uh, the early 80s and one from the 70s, and to sort of give you a sense of uh, the book. Um, I'll just start. After the inland sea dried up and its beaches turned to sandstone and the plant life turned to coal and gas, the ice advanced and ground the stone to dirt, then later retreated from the riparian valleys, coolies and rolling plains where now a girl stepped through the rabbit bush, rough fescue and western wheatgrass. She wiped her eyes with the back of her hand, pulled her six-shooter cap gun out of its holster, pointed the pistol in the air and fired, a loud pop and the choking smell of the burning cap but nothing else, no other creature. She pulled the guide handbook from the rear waistband of her cutoffs and turned the blue and white paperback over in her hands. She traced the clover leaf with the letters GGC on the back cover, mouthed the words, published by Girl Guides of Canada, Guide du Canada, 1965, and flipped it open to the forward. At the bottom of the page, she stopped on the sentences, you are now a guide recruit. This book is for you. The girl wiped her eyes again, and sick of crying, she spat on the page. She raised her arm to hurl the book into the field, let the ground squirrels and magpies tear up the pages for their nests. But after a moment's hesitation, she dropped her arm and tucked the pilfered book back into the waistband of her shorts. Fuck them. She was keeping this book because it was for her, right? Even if she was no goddamn guide recruit. <laughs> <laughs> Each book has a little <coughs> section named after uh, a guide badge. And this one is called Signaler. Nice army boots, Bernie's first words to Francis. They go with the brush cut. <clears throat> so Bernie is Francis's sister. Thanks, Francis said sweetly. Bernie wrapped a single arm around Francis, pulling her clothes. Sarcasm, sweetie. She ran her hand across Francis's flat top. What were you thinking here? Frances swung her backpack with her free arm and headed toward the doors. Bernie fired up a smoke as soon as they got into the car. I'm trying to quit, she said. Frances unrolled her window. You'll see why it's so hard. Bernie took a long drag on her cigarette. They drove in silence. Barlow Trail rolled past, the mountains already dusted with snow marking the western horizon. Then the Sheraton Hotel, the Husky Truck Stop, the endless repair and service shops housed in dull beige buildings and, after the impossibly tiny cars of Europe, trucks, all trucks, like the Jimmy they were driving 
the brand name that her dad couldn't resist. Poor daddy, Francis said. Bernadette nodded, but I have to tell you, he's not so easy to live with right now. Francis bugged her eyes at Bernadette. Sure, that shit with Doris was brutal. I mean, really, really terrible. But hey, I lost a good job too. Bernadette tossed her cigarette out the window, the better part of it not smoked. And the guy I used to work for just died of a massive heart attack. He lost everything, every fucking thing. You have no idea. Give me some credit, Bernie. Bernadette raised her eyebrows and drove on, eyes on the road, hands tightly gripping the steering wheel, knuckles white. Okay, you can roll your window up now, Bernie said. Frances rolled her window up. The sisters drove in silence toward their father waiting at home. Jimmy was standing in the window. When Francis stepped out of the truck, he held his hand up, more like a stop signal than a wave. Jesus, he did look crazy. Francis offered a careful wave in return. Jimmy smiled and raised his other hand. He was holding a pill. He dipped the brightly illustrated green and red label toward her, a salute of sorts, raised the bottle to his mouth and took a long swallow. Then he bent toward the sofa and disappeared from view. I know you thought I was exaggerating, Bernie said. And so now I'm going back to 1974, and there's another character in the book who's not a sister, who stays with them. Her name is Robin, and they have a history from their childhood that they meet together as adults. And this section is called Outdoors in the City. <clears throat> Frankie opened her eyes with a start. There was a bug crawling on her cheek. She brushed it from her face and rolled onto her back to find a near-perfect girl standing above her. The girl's blonde hair was tied into two neat braids down the length of her back. Instead of cut-offs, she wore pressed pink shorts, a pink and white striped t-shirt, and navy blue canvas sneakers. I thought you were dead, the girl said. Maybe I am, Frankie said. How can you talk if you're dead? If you're an angel. I guess so. Frankie sat up, pulled her rubber thongs from her back pocket and slipped them onto her feet. The girl crutched down beside Frankie but didn't let her bum touch the grass. You seem dead. I was camouflaged. What's your name, the girl asked. Francis, Frankie said, but you can call me Frankie. I'm Robin because on April 10th my mum heard a Robin when she woke up and thought spring was here and then she went into labour. She thought it would never end but I was finally born on April 11th and my mum decided not to go through that again. Not even for a son. But anyway, my dad had a son before he got divorced from his first wife. Frankie had never met anyone who was divorced, but the girl didn't look that bad. I'm Francis because of the saint. Why were you camouflaged? I'm tracking some gophers. That explains it, Robin said. Explains what? You're kind of dirty if you haven't noticed. <laughs> Frankie's cheeks burned. Doesn't your mum get mad, Robin asked? No. Lucky you, I guess. Where do you live? Amy Lorne, Mobile, Amy Lorne Mobile Home Park, Frankie said. Where do you live? In Bonavista. My mum got mad because she said she'd rather have a GD man-made lake than nothing. So my dad got us a house at the lake, Robin said. Do you like swimming? I guess. Maybe one day I'll take you swimming if your mum says yes. Frankie's stomach growled. I should go home for lunch. Lunch was a long time ago. Frankie squinted into the sun. My mum might be mad, she said. Do you want to play tomorrow, Robin asked. <laughs> I don't know. The girl asked a lot of questions. <laughs> I'll bring a picnic, maybe, if I can. I'll meet you here at 10.30, Robin said. Frankie turned toward the hum of the traffic along McLeod, where a strip mall and a car dealership were germinating, ready to sprout. If I can, she repeated. 
Robin waved enthusiastically. I'll be waiting. Frankie licked her finger, then lifted it to test the direction of the wind. The other side of McLeod was to the west, so she was walking south. A breeze blew across her finger, but she couldn't tell from where. The girl didn't know that, though. Frankie slowed her pace. Bernadette would kick her ass if she went in now, but Bern was too stupid to look in the shed, and if Frankie was really quiet, she might hear her sister on the phone. And, if she were really lucky, Frankie would hear something she could use against Bernie later, <laughs> because, like her dad said, Bern was a bloody loose cannon. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want a field question? Questions? Are you interested in questions? Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, uh, it's not, not obligatory. I don't know if we'll give good answers, but <laughs> yeah, the question, you don't have to ask the question. Nancy? Yeah? I don't, do you know any fiction books set in Calgary other than yours? Oh, well, yeah. Uh, mostly written by people in Calgary, uh, in sometimes small presses, so maybe... Uh, you don't hear of them as much, but there's um, a writer, uh, Rona Altros, does a lot of stories set in Calgary. Um, she was I think W.O. Mitchell kind of qualifies for some mm -hmm. Calgary stories. Um, uh, you know, uh, Marcello D. I'm going to not get his last name. He writes nonfiction, but he writes. Yes. And um, not all of it's based in Calgary, but. And I'm just thinking, like, this year, not Calgary, but Edmonton, um, there's some guy's written a kind of queer fantasy Edmonton book that is top of my list to read. Um, it's, it's called The Melting Queen. So that is something. It's about the melting of the river. So that sounds kind of exciting. Um, but there are. There's people writing that are living there, you know, but they're published in small presses and they don't necessarily get this far east. But yeah, there are people doing it. Um, there's a collection I read by uh, Laurie Hanhill that's about sort of uh, alt music and punk rock set in the similar period, 80s, uh, in Calgary as well. I can't remember the title, but I read it many years ago. So there's those are the books that I know of like off the top of my head. But if I did some research, I think I could come with a hefty list. We get our ideas from space. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice ball. All right. There's still food and drink, more books to buy. Yes. And hang out. The door's open. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And from a June 1st launch and reading event featuring uh, two debut novels, uh, both by Wolsack and Wynn, at Novel Idea Bookstore, you just heard Nancy Jo Cullen with her The Western Alienation Merit Badge and Becky Blake with her Proof I Was Here. Tell you what, let's do this. It was a wonderful event that evening. I'll do this and uh, we'll be right back. Classical music. 
and what it's doing today. Listen to Counterpoint, hosted by myself, Selena Cirelli, here on CFRC 101.9, Monday nights at 7. Community House for Self-Reliance, widely known as 99 York, has for 30 years been providing a central, low-cost meeting space for groups that allow like-minded people to come together to learn from one another, to share resources and trade skills. The goal of this house is to act as an integral part of the neighborhood in which it is located. On a typical evening, an autism caregiver relief group will be at 99 York, together with a 12-step organization and a transgendered support group while a social justice and homeschooling group may be booked in the following day. The community house is also available for less official functions, such as barbecues, birthday and office parties, and other social gatherings. We are proud to also serve the Queen's community. For more information, visit 99 York Street in Kingston. Go to www.99york.org, email info at 99york.org, or call 613-542-1136. Folk Everything, every Saturday morning from 10 till noon on CFRC. Traditional folk, modern folk, future folk, and strange deviations from the norm. Hear the legacy of folk music and discover new favorites and forgotten classics on Folk Everything. Join me every Saturday morning at 10 for a romp through folk culture here on CFRC. Says Red Mullet to James. That's a fine motorbike. Did you know that the Grad Club is a non-profit cultural hub for members and non-members? Members include law, medical, education, and graduate students at Queen's University. Members get a 10% discount on food, free room bookings, and access to study spaces. Social memberships are also available to undergraduate students and community members. Make the Grad Club your home on campus. It's a great community and campus space. Follow us on Instagram at the Grad Club. And you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Again, we are located in Lower Crothers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, and here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock, we do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. And with a few minutes here, it looks like four, five, six, maybe, to share five, I guess, uh, some uh, calls for submissions, I think, in upcoming events. Uh, if I get to them, I will have more time, I believe, at the end of the second hour. So more time for that. Uh, but before I get into the calls, I do want to thank you for tuning in to the first hour today and hope you can stay tuned for the second in which I'll air uh, from a May 30th book launch and reading event. You'll hear Teresa Greenwood discussing her book about the Fort McMurray uh, wildfires. And the book is called What You Take With You. And uh, 
should mention again, you're listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. And uh, the other thing I want to mention is that uh, each hour of the show today, as with all Finding a Voice uh, hours segments, uh, they're saved to my blog space for it uh, shortly after I get home and will remain there for years at uh, Finding a Voice on CFRCFM.wordpress.com. One quick announcement, too, is let's see if I have that. Yeah, uh, the just announced uh, the fall terms, the writer in residence at Queen's University will uh, be Kanisha Lubrin. Uh, and uh, she, no information as far as dates or contact information or anything like that, but they have announced that. Uh, calls for submissions. There's one that will end in, uh, let me check here, the end of this month, I believe. Yeah, June 30th. This expires. So I definitely need to, I'm going to do two of them here. It is for Big Pond Rumors. And uh, this is quoting from their source. Uh, from its inception in 2006, they say uh, Big Pond Rumors has released two issues a year, winter and summer. Individual authors retain copyright of their work, and it says uh, that they assume only first international publication rights. Uh, they uh, submission reading time, and they respond within three to four months. Uh, you can submit any time, they say, but expect quicker response to your submission in the months November and December for the winter issue. And also now for the summer issue, the deadline, or their, that deadline is December 31st. And also May and June for this summer issue with its deadline again coming up June 30th. I'm just going to give you their website. You can check more information out there. www.big-pond-rumors.com slash. How's that? And the other one is local, Freelit Magazine. Uh, comes out bi-monthly. Uh, and they're looking for submissions of poetry, short stories, essays, and other prose, photography, and visual art. Each issue is thematic, uh, but they, and they do encourage a loose interpretation of theme. Uh, the call is out now for the next issue. Uh, call deadline is July 17th. Uh, the theme for the July issue is humanity. So for submission guidelines, updates, and access to past editions, any announcements, uh, or any other information, I guess, uh, please check their website below, www.freelitmagazine.com. Uh, they do have a Facebook page, too, so you might want to check that out. And let's see, I've got a minute here. I might be able to sneak at least one event in uh, coming up. If I can get my pages apart. Oh, I'll mention this one. This one is weekly, uh, except for the month of August. And it's called the Limestone Writers. They are a writing group. Uh, they meet every Wednesday, again, except for those in August. During the summer, from May through July, they meet uh, always in room 239 of the Stoffer Library. Uh, but the start time is 6 p.m. Uh, during the summer months instead of 7 p.m. the rest of the year. And uh, they meet to critique and support one another's writing. Uh, Nearly every genre, I believe, is covered. Fiction, poetry, nonfiction, memoir, it says, are all represented. And if you'd like more information, contact uh, uh, Dave Pratt. Uh, kind of organizes that. And so 
His email address is dpratt1939 at hotmail.com. So there you go. And here it is, 5 o'clock. So I'm going to switch information here and uh, let you know that you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. And again, we're located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online at www.cfrc.ca. And in this second hour, you're going to hear from a May 30th book launch and reading event, uh, Teresa Greenwood. And she uh, was more of less a reading. In fact, I don't think she read from the book at all, uh, but it was a discussion uh, that was very... Uh, very well, uh, everybody contributed a lot, so it was her comments, and then just around the room, there was a lot of discussion that night. And her book about the Fort McMurray wildfires called What You Take With You. The usual, this first, though, hourly announcement, uh, occasionally some poetry spoken word or music played on the show may contain strong language, but it's all plain in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. I, again, will have a bit of time to share upcoming events, and there are the two busy weeks coming up, and then it kind of dies down for the summer, but I want to definitely get a jump start on those. And uh, we will do that uh, after I air this. So... Uh, and I've already covered the call for submissions. So I don't have to worry about that. So there are others, uh, but they're out there far enough. Uh, there'll be plenty of time to promote them. Uh, so let's go ahead and just jump into this reading now. Again, it was a May 30th book launch and reading event. Uh, not really a reading event, but it was a discussion and talking event. And in it, you'll hear Teresa Greenwood discussing her book about the Fort McMurray wildfires. Again, that book was is called "What Do You Take With You." Here we go. Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming out tonight. We got a good crowd. Oscar and Joanne, I want to make sure that everybody knows there's like lots of food over here, and it's a gorgeous spread. And I don't know how many times you've. I know Maureen is has uh, worked with Joanna before and knows how great the food is. So if you get a chance to try it, make sure that you work your way over and, and have some. So I was going to, I know it says on the invitation that there was going to be a reading tonight, but I wasn't actually going to do a reading. I thought maybe we could do more a question and answer if anybody had anything they wanted to know. Because I've been doing a few of these things through Alberta, and people uh, always ask me uh, what they should do in the event of an emergency and if they're supposed to evacuate. And luckily, we have an emergency <laughs> management expert here, Al uh, McIntosh, who I worked with out in Fort McMurray in emergency management. So this is a great opportunity if anybody wants to ask any questions about emergency management. <laughs> we, we've got the uh, right person here. So anyway, we just thought I'd throw it open for Q&A. Anybody have No? Okay. No. How many people were affected? 90,000. Yeah, so it... Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, um, 
you should talk a little bit about uh, transportation because I worked for Diversified up there. Oh, did you? And sure. uh, they moved 46,000 people. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was huge. The, the day of the fire, it was. Uh, it started. It was a beautiful day, and it was about 32 degrees, and it was really warm, and people were doing grocery shopping, and the sky was blue, and it was just a fantastic day. And but no, and there was had been a fire on the north end of town that the fire department had been fighting for a few few days and they had some evacuations but they got that under control with water bombers and so everybody thought oh we're, they lifted the evacuations and people were going home and it just looked like it was going to be a great day and what nobody knew was there was this uh, weather pattern called a thermal inversion that was keeping all the smoke and the fire really close to the ground so as soon as the wind shifted it lifted the inversion layer and, it, and then the whole town just uh, uh, about, I guess, four kilometers. Where's Steve? He knows the, he does the distance. Oh, four kilometers, Steve, outside of t from our house. From where it began. From where it began. It, it just erupted into flames and just cascaded down this hill towards a river that the fire department had been assuming was going to be a natural fire break. Then it immediately hopped the river and was had houses on fire in about, what, half an hour, Steve, probably from the from the moment that it happened. Mm -hmm. So Steve was the uh, webmaster for the municipality, so he was sending out all the information. But it was happening so fast that they weren't even, they, they weren't able to get the information out. So one of the things that I say to people, because they, I think people picture in their head that like the um, fire department and the police were coming and knocking on the doors mm -hmm. and telling you to get out. But they weren't. They were all actually at the other end of town getting the people out of the houses that were on fire. So at the other end of the neighborhood where we were, it was really just, uh, they posted some stuff on the website and social media saying get out. And then the neighbors were going down the street, banging on the doors and telling the other neighbors to get out. So Which yeah. neighborhood were you in? Abbasan. <coughs> I was too. Yeah, so so what did you this I ask this everywhere I go, there's somebody from Fort McMurray there and I always ask the same question, which is what crazy thing did you pack when you were grabbing your stuff to go? Um, I actually left I finished on the Sunday before the fire, uh, before the evac, because the fire I think starts Saturday. Sure. And on the Sunday, I was finished 21 and 7, so yeah. I fueled my coach up at the 120 shop and heard that um, they were evacuating Prairie Creek and the horses. Like, yeah. a lot of people don't know that there were about 100 horses. Mm -hmm. And there's not it's not like here where you can just find a farmer's field yeah. even and put them, right? So I have two hitches on my truck. I didn't know anyone there, yeah. but I have horses. So I went down and um, moved some horses, but the lady wanted them. I said to her, I'm going to Calgary. Uh, I'll take your horses anywhere you like. I just have to get my puppy yeah. at home. And she said, no, I'd like my horses and waterways in my backyard. Oh, yeah. So the, the, And that the, yeah. waterways got completely destroyed. Yeah, there, it was... Uh, there were three, so for, if you want to, if you can picture Fort McMurray, it's actually the same size as Kingston population-wise, yeah. really close to it's the same. Concentrated. And except that it has a really young population where Kingston skews towards seniors. And a lot of the population works in the oil sands industry, so they yeah. train on safety all the time. That's a huge component to the success. It, it is a, it is, it is a, yeah. because when the fire hit and the evacuation order came out, everybody just obeyed it, and they all got their cars and they left. 
and nobody was standing around going, oh, I don't know, should I go? No, that yeah. is a huge part of it. And, and so, because they're probably, I mean, Alan would know better than I am, but I, I'm sure there would have been fatalities if people hadn't, and I mean hundreds of fatalities. It was like a... Well, I'd just throw something in. I think something that saved the, the system was that the downturn had hit a long time before. Yeah. And a year before that, there would have been another probably forty or 50,000 people in the town. Yeah. And the contractor, the shadow population was down from forty to 50,000 down to about 10 yeah. to 20. Mm. And the camps were down to about 30% yeah. occupancy. So there was a lot less people in the town when yeah. the, than the year before even. We came very close to having a fire the year before. We That's right. Yeah. Very, very close. Yeah. Uh, yep. Have, have they gotten any more? The like there was a, there was only a, yeah. one road out. Have they created any more roads? Like they, there was a discussion. Yeah. There's not really any way. It's it's like Kingston, but if you pick Kingston up and put it in the middle of a forest that's yeah. got forest for you know hundreds of miles all the way around it. And thousands of miles, I guess, really. They've looked at yeah. routes around. Yeah. The problem is there's uh, yeah. half a dozen very huge valleys you have to go over to put any other alternate route. Yeah, the one they crossing they've made redundancy up until <coughs> about 10 years yeah. ago, there was only, in fact, less than 10, there was only one bridge across the water. Now there's four bridges that are parallel at yeah. the same place because it's the only mm -hmm. place they can get across. So it's yeah. very difficult. question I had, because we only, yeah. in the East, we are only going by the media that, yeah. you know, reports. And so did you feel that the media covered it well, or? Yeah, you know, it was really hard story to cover because every time the wind changed direction, the whole story changed. Because the neighborhood that they were most worried about at the beginning is this neighborhood called Gregoire. It's really industrial, and it's full of propane tanks and gas yeah. tanks. And everybody was really worried about it. Parks. And trailer parks. <laughs> and trailer then, parks. And so that had been evacuated very early on. And the fire just went right, ended up going right around it. It wasn't really affected at all, except for a few things on one side of the highway. And the other, what they were, if you can picture it like the city of Kingston, if every car in Kingston went out on the road at the same time, mm -hmm. you would all be completely... Uh, it would come to a complete dead stop, and then you wouldn't be able to get anywhere. But so they started; they had to start staggering the neighborhoods, starting with the ones that were actually on fire, which was a neighborhood called Beacon Hill. But the and, good thing uh, was there was only one way to go, so everybody right. was going in the same direction. Yeah, there were two directions that's eventually, right. but there was Didn't no weaving north. of roads. Yeah, they were sending people north to the oil sands ca camps because mm -hmm. they have these huge camps. Mm -hmm. I compared it a little bit to like the prisons here, like there's all mm -hmm. these really extra accommodation, right? <laughs> and so people were heading to north towards the camps, but they got filled up almost immediately. So by the time I, it took me three hours to get, to take what's normally a 10 minute drive. And then I picked up Steve and we started to head north. But just by the time those three hours were up, they, they were already full um, north of McMurray. And they were, actually one of the places, I found it after the fire, they, there's this, one, only one senior's home in Fort McMurray and it only has about 25 yeah. seniors in it. But they were they had a deal with Diversified to get picked up and take them uh, to the emergency shelter, but they couldn't get through the phone lines to them, and they couldn't get um, and Diversified couldn't get through the traffic back town to them. So they ended up just flagging down a bus going past a school bus and throwing all the seniors on the bus and flagging down a pickup truck, and they threw all the canes and the walkers and the wheelchairs in the back of this pickup truck 
that they and they couldn't even really communicate with each other, so they just crept up to the first oil sands camp, and then when they got there, it was already full and. 3D people just gave up their rooms and went out and slept oh. in their cars and let the sea. They were all kinds of really great, great stories, stories like that. Yeah. Did any make it as far as uh, Wapsu? I don't, I don't know. I know, like, in, when I was working in the municipality, <laughs> when, when Alan and I were there, like, Firebag was considered, like, as far north as you could go That's for a work camp. That's Wapsu, and Wapsu holds 9,600 Yeah, and, and Firebag was full. So, on the other hand, all the camps that were full, they were there to feed and clothe oil workers so <laughs> some of the people were telling me they were having like steak three <laughs> times a day they all were holding two weeks worth of rations yeah. of food in the place all the time yeah, the yeah. Up there. five star yeah, yeah there were some interesting <laughs> stories about yeah. the how yep. they were in the and then the other interesting yeah. story well i mean it'd be terrifying but all of the school kids on the buses yeah, they were because there were some kids that couldn't get their parents couldn't get to them because they were it would working have been terrifying. Yeah. an hour north of town, and I think those were the people who were the most scared were mm -hmm. the people who couldn't get to the and and people were picking up picking up their neighbors' kids mm -hmm. and their nannies and all kinds of strangers and every time uh, Steve and I leave Fort McMurray, we take a cab out to the airport, and the cabbie tells us another story about who he ended up. They, they were just pulling over and picking people up and mm -hmm. taking them wherever. And sometimes they were going north and south and all these, it's like every ship a sail, all these people sort of coming together to try to get out of town. It was just really, a, like, as an experience, it was like really a once-in-a-lifetime kind of thing mm. to go through, just see people Is eat. Is someone yeah. going to make a musical? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they're ready. They're not ready for that yet. <laughs> but you know what? It went through going the, away. Yeah, exactly. Going exactly. Away. Went through the town is for Newfoundland, so it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> the, the home you were in, did it burn? It did burn, yeah. Oh, I... We actually didn't burn on... The, it didn't burn on the first day. Like, the fire burned for a week. It yeah, kind of yeah, raged its yeah. way more or less through town, but we were very close to the water treatment plant, and the the most important building that they had to save, and I talked about it a little bit in the book, is the water treatment plant, because if they lose the water treatment plant, they lose the ability to fight the fire. So they, the fire was, the water treatment plant is on the edge of the Athab Athabasca River, and uh, and then all around it is boreal forest, basically. So the fire came right up and was sort of licking at the side of the water treatment plant, and they basically had every firefighter it left in town. Yeah, and I always feel a bit like they had about 10 people inside the water treatment plant who were still throwing all the switches to keep the water going, and I think it must have been a little bit like being on the Titanic, you know, just before it went down. Well, there's different yeah. reservoirs around the place, yeah. and that place feeds the different reservoirs, yeah. and the fire department needed them in different areas. These guys yeah. stayed. There was, I think, nine of them stayed. I think so, time. yeah, and they were quite... And they were uh, water bombing the area around them, or not water bombing, chemical yeah. around to protect that resource. Did you know that on the um, Sunday night there were three fires? Like I kilometers and kilometers yeah. apart because I saw them on my way out to site. Like I picked yeah. up in water uh, down in the water area but I saw one because a, a bus driver got on the radio yeah. and said can we go up to Abasan because they've been lifting water there in the morning. So there was one behind Abasan and then I saw one at the water treatment plant yeah. and then at the shot or the lights by the 920 I looked up on the hill and there were 20 trees on fire. Yeah, it was really in the uh, the way the thermal patterns work. And Wayne probably knows more about this <coughs> than I do because they don't hear more of it. You know more about weather and trees and things. But the way the 
the the fire burns so hot it actually creates its own weather it creates its own lightning and so then it adds to the fire because it's creating its own lightning strikes but the sparks also go in these crazy patterns that you, you're driving along the highway and you see the sparks going over your head and then landing on wood piles and houses mm. and things on the other side of the road and bursting into flames and it's totally random like you can see one house standing still and everything burnt around it and then another area where there's absolutely nothing happening and then there's one house just sort of merrily burning away and it's really eerie when we were driving out of town because the fire had gotten so big they were literally just concentrating on air on getting people out of areas so you see like a house burning away just like crazy and no fire trucks or police or people or it's a little it feels a little like armageddon like you're you're in a movie or something and it's not not real and then you start seeing the the people start running out of gas while they're mm -hmm. fleeing and you start seeing all the abandoned vehicles <coughs> in the road and i don't know like how traffic didn't get blocked like people seem to be somehow getting the vehicles off the road and letting the traffic keep going but it was real I, I don't I don't know how we know how that happened but I think a lot of it was safety training and people paying attention and watching but uh, I don't I, I think it would be if this if the same thing happened in Kingston it would be <coughs> way way harder to have that kind of a successful outcome because mm -hmm. the population is right, so going like this that's right there's not the same kind of training about driving because uh, driver training is huge out there but also the population so elderly that it there the, the average age in Fort McMurray is only about 32 so mm -hmm. there and there's very few people <coughs> living there with disabilities and it was very easy for people to get to get people into the cars and get them out so the seniors home was kind of the one anomaly where they were having trouble and it was completely it, because of where it was located in the downtown it's kind of an isolated area it was just not on the radar at all for people they actually dialed 911 and so many people were dialing night like when they couldn't get their plan activated because they couldn't get people on the phone they called 911 and they couldn't get through because so many people were dialing 911 that the, the lines were basically down it was just a crazy experience yep. so what happened at the hospital the hospital, the, they, they uh, medevaced everybody, so they brought in helicopters, and they also brought in, and the diversified team brought in buses. Yeah. Well, they went by city bus to fire bag a lot of them. They did, yeah. So they were, they were actually like women giving birth and yeah. getting loaded into these city buses and then go, going, you know, the, and the baby in the incubator in one bus and the mom in another mm -hmm. bus. It was crazy and they were they cleared out the parking lot and they were landing helicopters from where I was kind of trying to get out of Abyssin you could see the the choppers coming down and then they rush out and throw people in and then they just go and then the next chopper comes in and I you know no I don't know it's not like there was an air traffic controller standing on the top of the <laughs> hospital telling people <laughs> on the top of the hospital were two firefighters with hoses wet, wetting it down it was like it, it really was. It was just like a movie. It was crazy. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Where did they find all the water bombers? Uh, well, they there. didn't. There's a little controversy, I think, about the water bombers because they were they had they they were targeting this one fire at the north end of town. But there was also my understanding is there was some miscommunication between the provincial water bombers and mm. and the municipality and. 
So I'm not, but also when the wind shifted, when from our house, we live very close to the what they call the Horse River, and you could, it was kind of fun actually to watch the helicopters go down and they swoop in and they grab a big bucket of the water and then they go off and dump it. But once the wind shifts and the smoke gets so thick, they're grounded. They can't, they can't see Mm -hmm. through it. So they, by the time, in the time it took for me to unpack my groceries and then go back outside, it was a complete black cloud that they wouldn't have been able to. They must have landed them all immediately, I would assume, because they could have easily crashed into each other. They would just not have seen each other coming. So, when you saw people's faces, Mm -hmm. were they like blank or were they crying or? No, mostly what people were really concerned with in the early time was finding the other people in their family Mm -hmm. because it was an ordinary work day. They looked really preoccupied or something. They looked, what did their faces look like? Well, there were, a lot of people were looking at their phones, but, uh, and these two young lads from Newfoundland who lived next to me who had, like, beautiful, thick Newfoundland accents were, they kept going, beggar's frickin' belief, over and over again. And that was kind of the look on people's faces, I would say, as they were, uh, like, is this really how serious is Because you get evacuation orders fairly frequently, I'd say, Alan. Like, they probably issue them dozen times over a summer, but not for the whole town, for various neighborhoods. And people at are that used point to, in time, yeah. the Alberta Alert, you had to actually physically download that to your phone. Right. Forget it. We were doing a lot of outreach. A lot of people just didn't have the alert system yeah. there mm-hmm. on their phones, so they were only getting what was coming over Facebook or, or gossip. Yeah, that's right. Three yeah. or four gossip. Yeah. Somebody's report a large yeah. fire, but it really wasn't, so it was a lot of yeah. incorrect fake news or whatever you call it. <laughs> I guess the term now is getting yeah. people excited about certain yeah. areas and other areas. Yeah. I've been involved in, I've experienced crisis, not that kind of a, or the prison I have experienced some crisis, but that, but I wouldn't get to that. But I, I've experienced crisis where people, the, the whole structure of society was challenged. Mm. Uh, I was in New York mm. when uh, Kennedy was killed, mm. road, subway, and people, wow. saw people huh. hug, crying and yeah. hugging each other, black and white yeah. people who normally would not even yeah talk to each other. And then um, Marilyn and I were in outside of, we were in Brunswick, New Jersey on uh, <coughs> September 11th. Mm. September 11th? Yeah. And again, it was, the whole society was challenged. Yeah, it was a little bit like that in Edmonton after the fire. Well, we went, to, we ended up in Edmonton, and then of course we ended up there for about a week because you you didn't know they they were still fighting the fire, so they had absolutely no time to do property analysis and tell you if your house was there or not. And the people were going crazy trying to help you if you were from Fort McMurray. It was wild. And it, you're, like if you're walking in front of a hotel, people would pull their car over and yell, "Do you need a toothbrush?" You know, and things like that. Or the wind. And, and Steve and I were in a, we were having dinner every night at this restaurant outside the, uh, that's attached to the hotel, and we were, I know, talking about the fire one night. <coughs> and we went up to pay afterwards, and they said, "Oh, this guy was just here. He heard you talking. He's just paid for your meal, but he doesn't want you to know who he is. It's like, really? It was just an honor. And I just burst into tears because he was just, it was so, 
generous. Like even now, I kind of tear up thinking about it. But it was something that everybody talked about after the fire. Was somebody would do something nice for them that, like, give them a free cab ride or wave a fee. Or this one person was t that we know, Kevin and Brooke, where they gave Brooke's son got a free bag of Lego at Legoland and it, it all and she was just crying her eyes out of the middle of Legoland holding this like little bag of which you can easily picture but like how people reacted was just amazing and you would think that like when I was at the store because uh, you had to buy socks and had to wear pajamas and shoes and all kinds of stuff and I said, and they were offering, you know, big discounts if you were from, and I said, how do you know that people are from Fort McMurray? And the girl behind the counter said, oh, trust me, we can tell. <laughs> 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 you all look like really tired and you're kind of bewildered and you keep going, oh, no, and I also need this and I also need that. And, uh, and we went into the Walmart, which was one of the only places that wasn't, uh, giving discounts and uh, they were completely <laughs> sold out of men's underwear and socks and shoes and it was just because of the population skews male up in Fort McMurray too yeah. so it was just Great. crazy. Yeah. You talked in the book, I, yeah. I have my copy but I haven't read it all, <laughs> about what? the aftermath yeah. even a couple of years after. It was like on my daughter two years after. The first yeah. summer was fine. Last summer yeah. There was a fire down along the river, and she phoned me, and she was an absolute. She says, "I can't stop crying. I can't yeah. stop hyperventilating." Mm -hmm. We did some memoir workshops this this year, and people, because it's really cold in the north, it's a really slow building season. So, it really took two years to get the fire happened in May. If you, they couldn't even get into some neighborhoods till November. By December, it's minus 40, so you can't like concrete or any of that kind of stuff. So pretty much everybody knew it was going to be two years before most of the houses got built. And there's still only 36% of the properties have been rebuilt since the fire. And But a lot of people are now just, they're finishing their insurance claims, and they're finishing the build, or they're finishing up all the details. And now they realize like they still have a lot of anger and anxiety, and we did a... Uh, reading in the mall in Fort McMurray. And people were bringing in stuff to show us that they've saved from the fire too, like their rolling pins and stuff, and it was yeah. really neat. But they said, and the one woman said, I'm really angry, not at anybody in particular, but I'm just like so angry that this happened to me. And it was, and some people still can't talk about it. It's, mm -hmm. it's really interesting, yeah. From the writerly point of view, <laughs> do you think yeah. that writing your book helped you to deal with yeah, it? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I'll bet. Now, even when I read it, sometimes I do a reading and I think, did I write this? Because it's like I kind of worked it, I kind of yeah. left it on the page, you know, and, and other stuff too, not about the fire, but so yeah. my sisters are here tonight and I write quite a bit about what it was like when we were kids. And I have to say thanks to my sisters too, because a lot of sisters wouldn't like all that stuff coming out. <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> Been a really good support. And they're the only people I was worried about reading it, but and yeah. Diane. But <laughs> yeah. You know what I think was a really contributing factor was, and this will seem funny to a lot of people, Facebook. Without yeah. Facebook, the outcome of a lot of things would be very different. 
I think so. It was yeah. certainly like it was, it was really a way to connect, right? Yeah, and people because you could find the real. It's hard because now we know in hindsight that nobody died, but at the time, yeah. it really took a few days before we really believed that nobody was killed because it was just came so fast and out of nowhere. And mm -hmm. if it had happened at midnight, there literally would have been thousands of people dead if it was midnight wow. instead of lots 12 of, noon. Lots yeah. of pets. But on I mean, my cats were in my house. Yeah. For eight days. Oh, really? Or well, then, did you use the municipal website? Yes, I did. With Steve invented that. We're sitting in the hotel room, and Steve's taking calls about. Well, you, he did the website interface, <coughs> but if you were supposed to call him if you were having trouble with the website, but people were calling you about the cats, and mm -hmm. so it was. And my favorite was the guy who. He had had 12 homing pigeons that he had set free because the fire was coming and he was worried they had flown back into oh. the fire. And, it was, and I was thinking, thank God, there's just like so many people affected like in so many ways. I think the homing pigeons were okay, but <laughs> <laughs> as far as we know. But people had snakes and, the, you know. The horses I took to Waterway, yeah. that lady had the worst karma of anyone I've ever met. Yeah. I had yeah. a... 11 o'clock at night, I mean, I'd been up yeah. since 3 a.m., so I was toasted. But I still handed her, tried to hand her the keys to my truck. Yeah. I said, I have to get to Calgary, give yeah. me your car. Yeah. And she said, no, unhitch yeah. that trailer. And I thought, red, green was right, you can't fix stupid, so I yeah. unhitched it. And then the person, I learned later that um, someone, because they, they put out a Facebook plea for somebody with a gooseneck hitch. Lots of fifth wheels, but not a gooseneck hitch, right, to get her out. Yeah. And when the guy found her at 10 o'clock at night, she was in the Clearwater River at the boat launch with a three-year-old child, a dog, and two horses oh. watching her house burn. Oh, that's, yeah. And that's she sad. gave her car to that guy, yeah. and she split, and he mm. took it home, and it burned next to his house. Yeah. That's the way it went. It's great when they, when the the fire was so hot too that I don't know like when you see a picture of a house burned down you usually yeah. see like a wall and mm -hmm. some stuff standing but it just like incinerated everything in it. They said it took thirty path. minutes approximately. Yeah, <laughs> it was like even because someone was telling me yesterday. Oh, I've got all my documents in a fireproof safe and I thought well nice no. try but you know <laughs> they, it was incinerating barbecues and fireproof safes and mm -hmm. people's gun safes and all that kind of stuff they were it looked like the surface of the moon it was just craters and dust like there's absolutely nothing left it was crazy yeah. the, the yeah. fridge thing was a funny yeah. one afterwards like people yeah. just took their fridges out to the curb because yeah. they were so worried about the contents mm. contaminating stuff yeah. and the insurance companies had a heyday with that because neighborhoods that weren't even affected did that. That's oh, we're just all going to get new appliances. <laughs> we did, yes. Well, there's always upsides, I guess. Patty, you're going to ask Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah. again, from a writer's perspective, yeah. writing about trauma that's so fresh, yeah. what did you do to keep yourself a, uh, a more objective yeah. because it, it, you know a lot of people will write about trauma that's mm -hmm. happened years past so did you find you had to stop and start no I did it the opposite way I wrote the whole thing as if it never even happened to me like it completely happened oh. to somebody else and I also left Steve out of it and I sent it to my friend Ann Lukitz who a lot of you probably know and Ann's phobia was just so tell me 
Were you alone? Yeah, no, Anna. It was I. Uh, Steve was there. She goes, well, it's a little hard to tell. I think. And then she goes, so my only advice is more Steve. She said. So we started. We've been joking it before. We call the book Eat, Pray, Steve. But as soon as it, then, as soon as I added in the person that I was interacting with, then it got. It was easier to do, but cause Steve was there, so it was not like I, I didn't have to go through this alone. So we, I was able to check stuff with him. And is this the way? That's right. Everybody's got Steve. So and he can sign it. Eat, pray, Steve. <laughs> but uh, so, and then also I, re I realized I needed to use dialogue from a writer point of view. I should be using the dialogue more to tell the story. But Anne really yeah. had to give me a kick in the pants to do it. And then. One of, one of my friends at Providence Motherhouse, Sister Lucy Bethel, said, you think you should maybe put more of your own reaction in here a little bit, like you're reading this. How did that make you feel? Yes, how did that make you feel? And, okay, but it took me, but it wasn't until like about draft six that I really probably got into it. So yeah, I did it exactly the opposite. You were, you were writing like a reporter that you trained? For. Yeah, totally. I was writing it like a reporter. At 6.15 a.m., we had the first. That what about your training? Yeah, it was yeah. easy, and it was easy to do it that way because yeah. it's you train to do it, and it's mm -hmm. not. But yeah. In context, Calgary had the flood in 2013. Yeah, and yeah, we had that in Fort McMurray too. Were there yeah. people that were in both of those? That must have been difficult for them. I think. Yeah, the people in the waterways neighborhood that they they got flooded out in Fort McMurray in 2013, and mm -hmm. they uh, and they did not evacuate when they were supposed to for yeah. the flood. Half the waterways yeah. they're not rebuilding yet because they no. haven't built a floodplain. Mm -hmm. Right. It was kind of a cool. It reminded me a little bit of the Kingston old it Kingston waterfront, like it was old, crazy mm -hmm. old buildings mm -hmm. and but all that stuff. No. They saved the Legion, and <laughs> and I love What's and more important, right? the Athabasca <laughs> Tribal Council head office, which yeah, is the head office for the five First Nations there. As they they were running at the door, and they stopped, and they did a big smudging ceremony around it, and then it was like the only thing that didn't burn <laughs> besides the concrete oh, Legion. So they tell everybody when you when you go there. That they smudge it, yeah. You know, Absen was my bus run to Suncor. And after the fire, I'll tell you, it was weird to sit up there in a coach and have to look at street corners like, do I go right? You know what? Well, we couldn't find our house because everything had burned down. So when we went up to look yeah, for it, it's so like white. you're walking. It's, it's all the, you know, oh, where's the guy with the drywall on his garage and all that? It's all gone. Yeah. You can't you can't find your way around. It's kind of spooky. And you find yourself going south when you mean to be going north because all of your... Everything you orient by is so yes. Yeah, so the map in your head was wiped out. Completely gone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this neighborhood waterways. It looks like a waterways spaship came down and just headache. sucked the whole neighborhood up. It's completely. Oh. Yeah. You've probably seen it, I guess, outside here. It's it's eerie because it used to be this like cheerful little jumble of all kind. Yeah. It reminded me down. You know where. George Bates's house used to be and all that stuff, Brian, on the waterfront. It, you, it looked like that. Like had a lot of character, and you know, as it, on the and and before, the railway tracks ran through it, even though the train hadn't been up there for 50 years and all that sort of stuff. And now it's just, it's starting to look like a farmer's field now. Before it looked like the apocalypse or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, we've been following yeah. Cuba a great deal over uh -huh. the years. Cuba has a lot of disasters mm. because they're in the yeah. hurricane <coughs> track. Um, they have a very sophisticated system of re response. 
compare what happened yeah. in Puerto Rico and Cuba. Yeah. They've had the same hurricane and similar amount of disaster. And Cuba had fewer deaths and less long-term mm -hmm. consequences for people. Although the, if, I understand there were a lot of criticisms of the of the preparedness of. Um, Alberta for that kind of disaster. Yeah, I think. It, how, was that yeah. a response? Is there any reason why that is true? Was it true? Was it a, a reaction or how valid? No, I'm going to throw it to well, Alan. Like I, would, yeah. I would say, number one, in Cuba, people do what they're told. Yeah. So <laughs> they're told to prepare, they get prepared. Yeah. The thing that bothers me as the emergency manager, you'll see they'll interview somebody and say, I didn't even have time to get my wallet, I have nothing. Well, whose fault is that? <laughs> when the fires are raging around your around your town, we saw a lot. Yeah, of I had my go bag. Yeah. <laughs> You'd have been so proud of me, Alice. Well, I didn't have any gas. Well, you know, as an emergency manager in my old history, and even when I was in the army, where if I'm somewhere, I always make sure I have enough gas to get to the next town. If you're in Fort McMurray, it's 250 kilometers to the next major gas stop. So if you don't have half a tank of gas, you're not getting there, no matter what. So it's an interesting thing, and, and populations respond. This population, because they had a safety culture, and this is a huge safety culture in all the oil refineries and how they operate, the driving culture, the, the um, kit that they have to bring, they are always got their kit and everything. And that's why they survived. Therese is absolutely true about that. But the population doesn't do it, and if they... Don't get here. They they can criticize. Down in Cuba, they can't criticize. They do what they're told. <laughs> <laughs> but the Cuba is a relatively poor country com compared to yeah. our, our Western. I've been there, yeah. And uh, but the government does a lot of preparation. Yeah. I mean, the government organizes resources to be prepared, and they communicate closely. It's not. And, but, and, and but, Cubans yeah. have a, Cubans have a very Independent streak to them. Have you ever yeah. visited Cuba? You but know to that. Alan's point, I was. If I could yeah. just no, throw no, one thing in here, yeah. preparedness does not oh. buy votes. In Cuba, you don't have to buy votes. Right. And here, we have very, very short memories. Mm -hmm. Right now, the fire is now two, three years old. Mm -hmm. I guarantee you, the stockpiles of retardant have gone are not stockpiled anymore. A lot of the government equipment that was used has not been replaced because the memory's gone of the disaster until the next disaster. It's really good. I, I, when I went into the job, I left five months before it. Went into the job, it was right after the flood, the Hanging Stone flood. I could get whatever I wanted. I had as much money as I needed. I could buy equipment. I could buy things. The thing within about eight to ten months, that changed completely. Because the mentality, they'd forgotten about it. In Canada, we forget about those things. And then when something happens, people don't do what they're told. They think it's the problem of the government, and it's not. Evacuation orders, they're not going to force you to go out, but people don't realize. An evacuation order means that it actually means that we're not going to send anybody to rescue you anymore because it's too dangerous. And that's the real thing and people will do that and then they'll complain that nobody came to help them. We, yeah. I was just in Canmore yeah. Yeah. three weeks ago I guess and we were we did a session with staff on what's it like to be working on the fire while your own house is burning down was basically it 
And so I did, did a little quiz with the staff, and they were going to, if you had a fully packed go bag, you'd get a free book. Well, nobody got a free book because the staff <laughs> didn't even, the, the staff who were supposed to be working on it didn't have. Now, they were very honest, I have to admit, because the boss was sitting there and they all still admitted that they didn't have it done. But they, the, the CAO did get back to me and say, you know what, we've all packed our go bags now. So I don't know if you've been in Canmore, but it's like great. The yes. boreal forest goes mm -hmm. right up to yeah. people's houses. Like they're at a huge risk. For it's basically only one road in and out. Yeah, and it's it's too. worse yeah. than McMurray because at least the McMurray kind of winds, and you could get there's a lot of river, and you know there, we were talking. There's one First Nation community north of Fort McMurray right now. It's extreme fire risk. Yeah, and their plan is to go to the river because it's an hour plane ride just to get out of there like they're they're gonna have to hit the river to save themselves basically but they're a little more prepared I think Alan than some of the people you did yeah Marie you want to say that well, no yeah. all I was thinking was you're because you're grew up yeah. in Wolf Island don't you think that the training from Wolf Island made you resilient <laughs> <laughs> absolutely <laughs> Absolutely. Can I throw one more point in? Yeah, sure. The other thing that, that yeah. people don't seem to realize is that they call 911 and somebody will come. There's yeah. only so many fire trucks, yeah. so many ambulances, so many policemen, and once mm -hmm. they're gone to the priority areas, yeah, yeah. you're not going to. If you're not yeah. in a priority area at that moment, the water treatment or somewhere. You're going to complain because nobody came and nobody fought the fire around yeah. your house. But it's a little bit like you know how, having worked here at the city of Kingston communities, yeah. if you're not on one of the priority snow plowing routes, you don't get your road plowed. Yeah. It's but exactly the same. The same. Fort McMurray yeah. has yeah. how many? It has four fire stations. Yeah. I think it has nine pumping trucks and I think seven ambulances. That's it. Yeah. Um, we have one fire truck. And 140 <laughs> full-time firemen that can't work 24 Some hours a day right. and who have families yeah. they have to look yeah. after as well. Yeah. So it's, it's, yeah. it's uh, and when yeah. people don't show up, yeah. somebody yeah. complains. You get yeah. the complaints, yeah. I guess. Yeah. And that's the real the thing. Yeah. In Cuba, there's a doctor, what, for every 150 people, mm -hmm. I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know what? I think I'm going to... Uh, can, can I just comment about Kingston for a minute? We had a nice storm, right? <laughs> I mean, you said after the uh, event, the, the resort. <coughs> I think we should... I think we have to realize or appreciate that our utilities, Kingston, has never forgotten the ice storm. They've been working conscientiously to upgrade their equipment. It was left, before the ice storm, it was left to deteriorate. It's been getting old, and we don't know about it, but our rates are going up slightly, because I attended a meeting yesterday, to replace, they've replaced 900 poles uh, in the past couple of years. Which is yeah. a lot of pull. But they should be putting them underground. That's right. It's too yeah. <laughs> but it's too expensive. It's money. Because poles will fall down no matter what. They have a the trees falling. Yeah. They also are replacing well, the. Uh, anyway. Yeah. yeah. Interesting, interesting debate. Yeah. But I think really good. They, yeah. They, it's been conscientious. They, they it's, a, it's a big issue for sure. But I can see the Wolf Islanders are getting restless. So I think I'm going to wrap it up. And then, and anybody can, Alan's here, so this is your chance to really find out the emergency management. <laughs> You're welcome. And uh, have some of the great food. That, have some of the great food that Joanne's got prepared over here. And, uh, Thank you.
And you just uh, heard from a May 30th book launch and reading event, uh, Teresa Greenwood, uh, discussing, and it was a lively discussion, as you can tell. It kind of uh, diverged off, but then came back around, uh, but discussing her book about the Fort McMurray wildfires, uh, the book called again, What You Take With You. And uh, tell you what, uh, let's do this and I'll be right back. This is the opera. Hello, I'm David Smith, and I'd like to invite you to explore the exciting world of opera with me every Sunday at 11 a.m. here on CFRC. We'll listen to opera excerpts, full-length operas, and profiles of artists past and present. Please join me every Sunday from 11 till 1 for This is the Opera. Enjoy camping, cottaging, hiking, or being outdoors after a long winter? We are not alone. Every summer, Ontarians far and wide escape the daily grind and head to the great outdoors. But holidays have the ability to turn deadly due to Lyme disease, a potentially fatal disease caused by the bite of a black-legged tick known as a deer tick. Causing similar symptoms to the flu, such as fever, headache, fatigue, muscle and joint pain. However, if you see a red bullseye-type rash, Chances are you don't have the flu. Take a few precautions to make sure Lyme disease doesn't ruin your vacation this year. Avoid shrubs and tall grassy areas where black-legged ticks are known to live. Bug repellent containing DEET is an effective way to prevent ticks from biting you. Cover up. When you're in areas that are known to have ticks, cover all exposed areas of your body. Wear white so you're able to see if a black tick is on you. Infected ticks are primarily found along the north shores of Lake Erie, Lake Ontario, and the St. Lawrence River. Be prepared this summer, and don't get ticked off. Do you like to dance? Tune into The Hustle with DJ Bolt every Friday night between 11 p.m. and midnight. Where you'll hear all the newest dance, electronic, French touch, booty bass, ghetto, deep, and tech house remixes and more. Let The Hustle take you to midnight and beyond at 11 p.m. on 4 to the Floor Fridays. Only on CFRC 101.9 FM. The staff at Martha's Table provides a caring place where people in need can have nutritious meal for only $1. Now you can get involved in this great cause. Martha's Table is looking for volunteers to help in the kitchen, at the drop-in center, picking up food, or even being a friendly face at fundraising events. Volunteer orientation is every Thursday at 4.30 in the drop-in center, and volunteers must be 14 years of age or older. You can donate using a credit card through marthastable.ca, or you can send your donation by mail, cash, check, or bank draft. Martha's Table, 629 Princess Street, whether it's volunteering, donating, or anything else that you can offer Martha's Table, visit their website, marthastable.ca. 
And you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. And again, we do stream live, www.cfrc.ca. Let's go ahead and jump into some events here. I do have a few minutes. So uh, uh, read in. uh, This is actually Modern Fuels Artist Run Center putting this on. It's uh, kind of a new program. I believe it just started this year. It's called Read In, and this is number five in that series. And reading, what what it is, is a reading salon uh, series featuring a selection of short texts uh, recommended by artists at Modern Fuel uh, Artist Run Center's current exhibitions and occasionally staff. Uh, The reading salon in the series will offer uh, readings recommended, in this case by Joan Scaglione in the context of... Her exhibition called Squall. This does begin at the Modern Fuel Artist Run Center at in Suite 305 uh, in the Tet Center, which is located at 370 King Street West. It begins tomorrow, actually, at June 15th. Uh, begins at 1 and is over at 2.30. www.modernfuel.org. And then if you want to go directly to the page slash read in. And uh, coming up on Sunday, meet uh, Sue Williams as she signs copies of her compelling memoir called Ready to Come About. Uh, For more details, you can check out her website. It's uh, HTTPS, uh, lotsofwaystolivealife.net. So that's all one word. I had to uh, kind of spell it out there. So lotsofwaystolivealife.net. And uh, you'll learn more about it. Also, I do believe that uh, Novel Idea, where it will be happening Sunday on the 16th again from 1 to 4 p.m., does have uh, posting about it on their Facebook page as well. So just check out Novel Idea on uh, Facebook and you'll see a blurb on it as well. There is a book launch coming up uh, next week on Wednesday evening, uh, June 19th, uh, from 7 to 8.30 p.m., uh, going to be held at the Community House, also known as 99 York Street, and that's where it's located. Uh, You're going to hear, uh, let's see, Jason Haru launching his chapbook called The Book of Blessings, Uh, Stuart Ross will launch his Motel of Opposable Thumbs. Hugh Thomas uh, will launch Maze. And Mark Laba uh, will launch The Inflatable Life. Uh, There will be a short Q&A after uh, the readings, too. So, again, that is Wednesday evening, June 19th from 7 to 8.30 p.m. at 99 York Street. Also happening on that same day, it uh, is Skellen Park Arts Fest begins and uh, the first uh, e- evening event uh, to open that up will be the movie again it's about it's got my name in the title but it's about the poetry scene here in Kingston so if you haven't seen it it's a free opportunity to catch the film it's going to be held early actually uh, at the at Providence uh, Manor uh, which is located at uh, 275 Sydenham Street so just a block away from the park, uh, the north end of the park, I guess. That will be happening as well Wednesday, June 19th at 6 p.m. There are eight uh, poets and filmmakers and other artists uh, featured in different uh, vignettes uh, throughout the film. And so, again, uh, 
check out uh, Skeleton Park Arts Fest's uh, website, which is skeletonparkartsfest.ca. Uh, they're requesting that because there is the seating's free, but it's limited. So there's also information to make sure you get a copy of it uh, or get a seat. And uh, then there are two other poetry events happening at Skeleton Park Arts Festival this year. Uh, the one, uh, they're both the weekend events. So on Saturday, June 22nd, from 1 to 2.30 p.m., uh, you're going to hear, and it's going to be a collaboration with uh, a, a musical interlude provided by Kingston Symphony. Violinists will be Julia McFarlane and Eric Sluice, but I believe it's going to be set up with two readings ahead of that uh, and a reading after about an 85-minute or so, 75-to-80-minute uh, session uh, going to feature uh, it is sponsored by uh, Novel Idea Bookstore and it is co-presented by Kingston Writers Fest and Skeleton Park Arts Fest it's going to feature Kingston Poet Laureate Jason Heru uh, Sarah Milet-Tiang and uh, Olivia Aus and the following day I have more time to spend with this again next week but June 23rd, this will be the, the, I should mention this, poetry reading is the third in this annual series. They are starting another one, and these are all happening in Hillside Park, uh, or these both are happening in Hillside Park. Uh, Jason Haru will be coming back on uh, Sunday afternoon from 2 to 3.30, offering a prose poetry workshop. And I'm going to end it there because I'm running out of time, uh, but... Uh, and I will uh, talk more about these because there will be time before it next week as well. But jot those in your calendar. Again, go to Skeleton Park Arts uh, Fest uh, website and you'll find probably all the information you need. So I would like to thank you for tuning in today. And again, thanks uh, for listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce. Here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6, we stream live online, www.cfrc.ca. Again, uh, both hours of today's show, as they all are, will be uploaded to my blog space for it. Saved there in uh, for four years at Finding a Voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com. After this song and uh, short message, uh, stay tuned for Saltwater Music uh, coming up at 6 o'clock, hosted by Rob Carnell. Two hours, wonderful show, two hours of East Coast music. Now you're going to hear Sofa, Sofa Surfers with a song called Sofa Rockers. And uh, have a great weekend and week, and I'll catch you here next week. This podcast is produced in collaboration with CFRC.ca in Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Infrastructure support for the CFRC podcast project is provided by the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. For more information or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.